Today on Between the Lines, why we must overcome our broken politics in Washington and all across America with my distinguished guests, Senators Trent Lott and Tom Daschle. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick, Republican Senator Trent Lott and Democrat Senator Tom Daschle, both are former majority leaders of the Senate. Because of the important issues they raise in their book, Crisis Point, I'm dedicating two episodes of Between the Lines to get a deeper understanding of why our political system is broken and what we must do to fix it. In this episode, part one, our focus is on how this crisis happened. In our next episode, we'll concentrate on what we and our government must do to repair the damage. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was... You do, need, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. You don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And uh, it's the first Senators, it is truly a pleasure and an honor. You saw our green room is filled. You thought it was a family affair, but it's not. They are all here to see you, and I am so grateful that you are on Between the Lines. We're flattered. Thank you, Barry. And we enjoyed meeting the family. It was great. Uh, they were all excited. Congratulations oh. on the new granddaughter. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I've been telling everyone this is an important book, and it is as you say in the very beginning, it's a call to action because our politics right now, and no one, the, what's funny is everyone knows it, but what we're going to explore in this first episode is how and why it got there. And what we're going to do in episode two is explore what we and the government, and I know that's kind of a wrong term because the government really is us. So I should say what us is going to do about it. So the first point is, you know, our system, as you say in your book, was designed to encourage this kind of tension and debate, but it has become a plague. Well, the whole concept of this democratic republic is based on the competition of ideas. We've embraced that since the very beginning, from our founding fathers' days. The competition of ideas from the right and left, conservative, liberal, democratic, republican. That competition is something we embrace, we think is really one of our strengths. The problem is, if that competition never leads to reconciliation, to some compromise, to some common ground, you have stagnation and ultimately dysfunction. And that's exactly what's happened lately. More and more dysfunction, more and more polarization, more and more confrontation, and less and less good governance. Well, we, we weave throughout the book the historical background, the history of the beginning of the country, the, the debates that they had then. I like to make the point that George Washington almost had to leave office over the Jay Treaty in the very beginning. And so there, there were moments in history that there's always been this great conflict and debate, but we work through it. We've reached another point of gridlock and difficulty, we think, right now in our country, not just uh, politically, but we got concerned about the economy, the international situation's a real concern. So the purpose of the book is not to say, oh, look what we did, or look how bad it's been in history. The real purpose is, okay, what can we do about it? 
Well, that is what's interesting, because when you read even the the so-called things that were said about Jefferson even during the election, oh, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't even have it on, on, on television. <laughs> it was that rancid, you yeah, know. Yeah. But the difference, and you make this clear, was that that was partisan rancor. There was no doubt. But now it's overtaken the reason debate. Then it was part of the game, but it wasn't the entire game. That's what's happened now. As you say, the greatest divide right now is the aisle between the two ideologies when they always were different. But the gap between them was cross. You could cross over it. I can't think of a time when we've been more polarized and and more confrontational, when rhetorically we've done more to uh, undermine the the very tone and, and rhetorical uh, necessity of good governance. You've got to have that dialogue. You've got to have that chemistry. You've got to have a, an environment for uh, the ability to communicate with one another, ultimately based on trust and, and a better relationship. We don't have that today, and that's really one of the reasons we wrote Crisis Point. That's the crisis. That's the problem we're facing today. You know, the coarseness of the debate. Uh, now we've got uh, people calling uh, others in, in campaigning for office names. We had one senator called the majority leader in the Senate a liar on the floor of the Senate. We've lost some of the civility that goes uh, hand in glove with the finding a way to communicate, develop a, a trusting relationship. And it, that, that sort of thing really does bother me. It's contributed to the overall negative uh, feeling I think people have toward government. Well, and in fact... One of the important elements in here that you bring out is the dialogue between yourselves, because you guys are on complete opposite sides of this situation. You know, uh, when it comes to all forms of the ideology, whether it's the size of the government, whether it's what the government can do, you guys, but yet you always mention this fellowship. And that's what you were were leading us towards before, Senator Lott, was this you, you realize that if you didn't have this kind of at least camaraderie, we couldn't get anything done. And we can have different ideologies, but that's, as you said earlier, Senator Daschle, it's what those two, wasn't it Hegel that said the, the great difference, the, the thing that really progresses society is the two different ideologies sure. combating each other and the one that wins fair and square, that's what we go to. And then the other side then decides to try to take it back. Well, that's really the essence of a democratic republic. It's this notion that you're going to have different ideas. Sometimes I ask audiences to imagine 320 million people in a stadium yeah. with the president down in the center of that stadium saying, what do you think our tax policy should be? What should our education policy be? What should we do about international relations? You can just imagine the cacophony of voices and the strongly held views expressed within that stadium of 320 million people. Well, that's, that's actually what the Senate and house is it's it's a stadium it's it's our ability to reconcile the many many voices it's called the noise of democracy and sometimes that noise is very uh screechy not very good to listen to kind of painful sometimes but it beats the alternative barry it beats the the noise of violence that you see in syria today it beats no noise at all where in some countries you're arrested and put in jail for expressing yourself that doesn't mean it's what we should have. We've got to reconcile those voices, but it is the noise of democracy. You know, an important part of leadership is communication. 
And Tom and I worked at uh, doing that. We talked to each other. And more importantly, as he likes to say, you have to also listen a little bit, use your ears in, in the debate. Uh, and that leads then to when you're talking and communicating discussion issues and trying to figure out how to get a result, you, you build up, uh, you know, I didn't agree with Tom on a lot of issues that you noted, but I respected his point of view. And I trusted him not to be unfair with me and to communicate with me what he was thinking, what he needed, and for me to do the same. That's one of the things that uh, we really focus on in the book going forward, getting our leaders to communicate more. We've kind of, that doesn't happen like it used to between the president and the Congress or between the Republicans and the Democrats in the Congress. For heaven's sake, how are you going to make important decisions about international policy or war or peace or tax policy if you're not communicating and talking and thinking about how you get a result? Well, you guys gave us uh, five key things to look at. One is the chemistry. That's the basically that camaraderie to a certain extent, that the ability to, to feel that there isn't such rancor, that we yeah. can get along. And we'll go over this in, in part two in, in, in detail. Uh, the second is compromise, leadership, courage, and vision. I'm going to hit a lot of them in our second part, but one of them in particular, compromise, because compromise is what made this country great. As we said, it is taking both of those massive different ideologies which existed from our founding fathers based on the size of our government. But now to be a compromiser, as you say, is considered to be an insult. It's considered to be one of the low. In fact, you literally say that now in the Senate and the House, the person who is willing to be a radical moderate He's got to hide and not be seen, or he'll be considered a traitor to the cause. Well, there is the view that compromise today is capitulation. It's held on both the far right and the far left. And members of Congress, to a certain extent, are actually intimidated today to seek compromise because mm -hmm. they fear the reaction of some of the hardcore base on either side of the political spectrum today. Yet that's the only way you govern is to find that common ground. That doesn't mean Trent gives up his position or I give up my position. What it means is that we hold our positions, but ultimately we've got to reconcile those positions if you're going to move the country forward. We're not doing that like we should. The alternative to compromise is to stand your ground, and that, in my view, is dictatorship. If you expect everyone to come to your position, I don't know if that's, if that's not dictatorship, I don't know what it is. We abhor dictatorship in this country. So we've got to make our choices, and we've got to come to the realization that compromise is not capitulation. Compromise is not a dirty word, either. It's not a four-letter word. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, it probably should say the art of governing. Just think about it now. You're one of 100 senators, and you're trying to be one of the leaders. If you insist on purity when you've got 99 other senators representing different reasons, different points of view, how do you ever get a result? But a lot of these issues are not political or philosophical. Uh, having uh, safe drinking water looks like, hey, aren't we all for that? How do we get there? Now, you might have different points of view. A lot of people say, well, let's just pour more money into it. Uh, others might say, well, maybe some regulations would be helpful. But... Uh, yeah, uh, I've been accused of late of being uh, a populist, uh, a, a, you know, compromiser, establishment Republican. When did that happen? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had a very conservative voting record. I still believe the best government is the least government, the government closest to the people. But in order to get there, you have to be prepared to listen to other points of view 
to get a result. Now, an issue that you say we face, and again, as I was saying before, with some of the papers printed about Jefferson, but the media, the media, and, and I believe it's Senator Daschle that was, was quoted in the book as saying this, it has transformed itself from the referee to the active participant. Yeah. So now, and, and I think it was you, Senator Lott, who said, you know, I like to, lo- to look at the uh, Wall Street Journal first and maybe Tom likes to look at the New York Times first and then we <laughs> flop them around. But the point is now, with so many sources out there, for the average citizen, even above average, or I don't know if there is, I think actually the average citizen is the greatest citizen one could really be. But it is so difficult to get to a source of truth. You literally now almost have to go more than just two sources to get to the real bottom line. Well, there's there's a whole series of problems that I think have come with the modern media. One is that uh, within this new context, people not only have their own opinions, but they have their own facts, and you don't you really can't sort them out. The second thing is, as you suggest, Barry, there's a siloization. You tend to go to where you think you can find the greatest agreement, uh, whether it's the right or the left, and and that becomes a problem. Another one is the spontaneity of it all. Sometimes it's better to take a deep breath before you say something. But that doesn't happen all the time anymore. Now it's instantaneous communication. Say whatever whatever comes to mind first without some thoughtful consideration of, do I really want to say that before I I actually commit to saying it in writing or in in public? All of those changes to the media, uh, in addition to the fact that the media has become the participant, have made legislating and building this chemistry and this this relationship and good governance so much more difficult. I used to argue argue with some of my colleagues and said, oh, the media is part of the problem. I'm not going to go on that talk show. I'm not going to talk to the media. Hey, you've got to come to terms with what it is today, including social media. Campaigns have changed. Instead of all the money going into just television and radio, now it goes into collecting data, identifying people, social media, instantaneous, planned social media. So quit cursing the darkness. Uh, give us some ways that we can get to a better usage of the media. And you know, one of the things that you gentlemen, I want to bring out very clearly is because this is not, and and you you hinted at it earlier, this is not a nostalgic look at what was so great in the past. And in fact, you even mention specifically the young people who many of the talking heads, so to speak, and I have to be careful, I suppose I'm one of them to an extent, but many of them have always criticized, you know, they're spending all their time on social media, they're spending all their time in front of video games, they're doing this. You both have experienced, like I have experienced, just the opposite, that the young generation is the one that's really ripe for change. That that doesn't mean that we don't want the senators with wisdom and experience. We're not taking them out. In fact, when we talk in part two, part of the thing you'd like to see is a more active senior citizenry as well. But the youth are not to blame. And that's something when you read something like this, we always think it's the new. We're, We're talking about maybe the new in Congress or the Senate, but we're not talking about the new as the young people coming up. Well, the reality is we have to embrace change. There, there is no time in history when things have remained the same forever. They're going to continue to evolve. We'd be using whale oil today if that weren't that. <laughs> you know, there, there's just so many different illustrations of how 
different things are. That isn't to lament the fact that things are changing. It's to embrace them, to find ways to deal with them. Uh, The circumstances, as Trent just said, are vastly different than they used to be. Uh, I blame the airplane for part of the problem, in part because it has allowed people to, to become much more travel conscious and they can leave Washington so easily. Unfortunately, we leave on Thursdays and come back on Tuesdays and try to run the country on Wednesdays. That's a function of new technology. We've got to address that and find ways to deal with the new realities. And that's one reason why in the book, Tom and I suggest that we have everybody have one year of public service. Uh, When you get out of high school or turn 17, 18, whatever would be the right age, you spend a year working in the government in Washington, in the National Guard, fighting fires. But a year where you take some time to learn about uh, your civic responsibilities, your government, think about uh, what your role is uh, for our country. I think it'd be helpful. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. And I I think that the way you explained it in the book was Uncle Sam does best when it doesn't make demands. And I think if it was voluntarily that you were able to do this, then we would have a perfect way so that, like you said, we have this tremendous college debt. What better way if you can say to someone, and again, you don't have to join the service necessarily, although what an honorable way that is to serve, but you can be a firefighter or help a, a remedial class in, in, in school or do this or do that and take a year off of your college tuition payback or half or whatever compromise can be reached. So again, I think it's, it's not forced mandatory self-service, but again, Uncle Sam, as you say, does best when it becomes an incentive One of the things that I think we all recognize is that we owe a big debt uh, for having won the gene pool. We got to be born in this country. We've been given amazing opportunities that very few people in the rest of the world can experience. I just hope we never take it for granted. Um, There's a wonderful story about Benjamin Franklin once saying that, you know, asking if we'd have a monarchy or a republic. And he said, well, we'll have a republic if we can keep it. Well, we'll only keep it if we can fight for it or work at it. Many people have fought for it and died for this country. The very least the rest of us can do Mm -hmm. is to work at it, whether it's working at it in Congress or working at it in the military or working at it in a number of other ways. We've got to do all we can to keep this republic strong. And part of the problems, again, I want to get to, though, because they're the things we need to address in this segment. And this one, we're in the middle right now when this first airs of the primary system. And that primary system is broken. The money required, it seems as if every candidate is in a permanent election. And there's, it's almost embarrassing to us as a nation to watch everyone constantly running for office. That's what it seems like. And you even say in the book that 
we may not be able to control the money, but we can mm-hmm. control at least the time that's spent because that would in itself yeah. control the well, resources. Members of the House of Representatives are up every other year, but they're really having to run around the clock all the time. And uh, so much of that time is now spent having to raise money. Uh, the very dangerous connection between money and legislating that becomes more and more onerous. The extraordinary uh, amount of money spent and the amount of time. We're interrupting programs today with, uh, with, with I mean, we're interrupting commercials with programs on, on most commercial TV. $5 billion is likely to be spent on the presidential race this year. That's just unacceptable. How can we admonish other countries about the dangers of money and governance if we ourselves are so enmeshed with money today in the system? You just said, how can we impress other countries? One of the things you write about in this book is when, no matter whether we choose it or not, we are the leaders of the free world. And when we are stuck in this muck and mire, both of you feel it's an actual threat to our national security because they see that we can't get our act together. And if America can't get their act together, why would anyone else expect to? You literally feel that that might be one of the greatest threats we face. Whatever happens here is almost automatically sent around the world. Yeah. Everybody. One of the most often asked questions I get, Barry, when I travel, and both of us travel quite a bit, is what in the world is going on in Washington? Yeah. How is it that you're government, your country, is this dysfunctional? And what message does it send to other countries who aspire to be like the United States? Well, I think you give it in this line, uh, and I don't remember which one of you said it, or maybe it was both of you. We have to do this for our base instead of saying we have to do this or that for our country. Every day I walk, every day I ride into work, I have my radio on to a variety of different news, And that's the constant question and the constant response. What are we going to do for our base, not what are we going to do for our country? Now, uh, the the real challenge to office holders or incumbents in Congress now is in the primary, not in the general election. I never heard this idea, we've got to just go to our base, appeal to our base, until it started, I guess, in the 90s, and it's gotten worse and worse. When I first ran for Congress in 1972 as a Republican in a district where most people have never even seen a live Republican, I wasn't trying to go to some base. I was trying to get everybody I could talk to to consider voting for me as a young man for Congress. Uh, And they listened. But now uh, you've got to be looking over your shoulder and make sure that you're not doing something that's going to cost you your reelection just because of the base in your political party. You know, the irony is that... uh you know, Congress stands at around 15% approval rating right now. But there was a time right after 9-11 when it was in the 80s. It's almost hard to believe that Congress had an approval rating that was that high, 80 or 85%. Why was that? Well, what they saw were people coming together to face a real crisis at that time, too. But they didn't declare themselves to be uh, conservative Republicans or liberal Democrats. What they all said is, we're Americans before we're Republicans or Democrats. And that excited, that united, that energized our country. That's really what America wants to see today, that same degree of, 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 of willingness to put America first, our country first, and solve the problems our country is facing. And those weren't easy uh, things we were dealing with. We were talking about how do we help New York City recover? How do we help the airline industry, which was in real serious jeopardy? 
Uh, how do we uh, go after the people that caused 9-11? They were a very, and one of them was uh, the Patriot Act. Uh, how do we keep track of these uh, people that would uh, attack us? So we were making a lot of very faithful decisions, but people saw that we were coming together, trying to come to the right decision uh, for our country. But both of you gentlemen say that not only is the moral compass missing, but we're heading in the wrong direction and we don't have the mechanisms in place to point us the right way. Now, when we go into part two, we're going to get into those mechanisms, but that's a key problem right now. That is a problem, and it's really un, uh, unresolved until we can face the fact that we need leadership. We need uh, to create a new environment, legislatively and politically, in this country. Uh, these problems are not going to go away. In fact, they'll become even more exasperated uh, and, and, and complex uh, until we face up to them and recognize, really, we've got to face these issues now before they get worse. That's the point of the book, Crisis Point. But people ask me, well, how are we going to change this, this gridlock and the, the culture we found ourselves in? First of all, it, the people need to be more involved. You know, election, the turnout, uh, last election, 2014, I believe Thomas said it was like 38.5%. We need greater participation. But we also need some men and women in the White House and in the Congress that will lead, that will say, look, we're, we're going to take this issue up. We're going to debate it. There's some hope. I think uh, the new Speaker of the House, uh, Paul Ryan, has a, uh, a positive, uh, upbeat attitude. That helps. There's going to be new leadership in the Senate, with uh, probably with Chuck Schumer coming in as the Democratic leader. They will have an opportunity to help change the culture if they will lead. Well, Senators, you know, there's enough room for blame, as you say in the book. In part two, we're going to look at all the solutions you suggest. I want to end, though, with these few words and then close. We must act to preserve what's worth saving, change what is hindering us from progress, and exercise the wisdom to know which is which. Thank you, Senators Lott. Thank you, Senator Daschle. And I want you to stick around. We're going to go to part two shortly. But before we do, uh, we go through our second part of our conversations with both of you gentlemen. I want to leave you with these few more words from their book, Crisis Point. We must rebuild what we have lost and create anew what the times demand. It will begin when we harness the natural tension of politics in a productive way, creating an environment that allows for chemistry and compromise. I'm Barry Kibrick. Between what we have lost and will create anew is where that chemistry and compromise resides. Thank you both, Senators. Thanks and for we'll see us. you in a few more All minutes. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.